Welcome again to the Pogo Podcast. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Fellow at Pogo's Strauss Military Reform Project. How many times have you been flipping through the channels and stumbled on C-SPAN as they were replaying coverage of a Capitol Hill committee hearing? I know most people out there simply flip right to the next channel because committee hearings rarely make for good television. There are a dedicated few of us out there who do watch on occasion, and I suspect that if you have even made it this far in the podcast, you may be one of them. I know I certainly do. It is part of my job, after all. I find they're a good way to understand the players involved in national security matters. There's a great deal to be learned about the interests of particular members of Congress when you watch them in action during a hearing. They tend to reveal their interest by the questions they ask. And at least for me, I often find this to be more valuable than most of the responses from those appearing before the committee. I also appreciate the process. When a committee hearing is conducted properly, the American people have an opportunity to witness Congress performing one of its most critical functions, providing oversight of the federal government. There's a great quote from James Wilson, a member of the Second Continental Congress and one of the original six Supreme Court justices appointed by George Washington. In 1774, he published a pamphlet titled, Considerations on the Nature and Extent of the Legislative Authority of the British Parliament. He wrote the document to explain his belief that because the Americans did not have any representation in Parliament, Parliament did not have the authority to issue laws for the American colonists. He was actually one of the first to write about this. But in the course of the document, he goes into some detail about the powers Parliament does have, particularly after the House of Commons came into being. Writing about the influence the Commons has over the crown, he mentions the power of the purse and then calls them the grand inquisitors of the realm. He writes, The proudest ministers of the proudest monarchs have trembled at their censures and have appeared at the bar of the house to give an account of their conduct and ask pardon for their faults. Does that sound familiar? This is what Congress does today when it provides its check against the executive branch. We all deserve to see how our government works. It does belong to us, after all. Those working on Capitol Hill, both members of Congress and their staffs, have a responsibility to ensure it works and to keep the American people informed about how it is or isn't working. There are many ways to do this. Public hearings are only one way to deliver information to the people. They can also release reports or talk to journalists who can write a story about whatever it is the member of Congress or staffer has uncovered. And that brings us around to our main topic. How can a congressional office most effectively perform its oversight function? Winslow Wheeler, the former director of the Strauss Military Reform Project and a longtime Senate staffer, is a veteran of many Capitol Hill oversight battles. He wrote a great chapter in the book, The Pentagon Labyrinth, detailing many of the lessons he learned about how a Hill staffer could be most effective when in the oversight role. While he wrote this in the context of congressional oversight of the Pentagon, the general principles can be applied to most issues that fall under Congress's purview. I sat down with Winslow recently to discuss Pentagon oversight and how young staffers in particular can do it better. Oversight is important because Congress can't do anything that makes sense if it doesn't do oversight. Um, What I'm trying to say is that you have to understand what the hell's going on before you exercise the powers the Constitution gives Congress. The power of the purse, the power to make war, uh, the power to impeach. Uh, 
all the powers are just vapid, you know, fluff if you don't know what the hell's going on. And oversight in its most fundamental nature is figuring out what the hell's going on and who's doing what or who's not doing what. Um, uh, Arthur Schlesinger said, as I relate in my chapter in the Pentagon Labyrinth, there's three things that Congress does that are important. It decides whether we go to war, it has the power of the purse, and has the power to investigate. Um, and um, without the third, the first two are meaningless. As we learned in 2002, when Congress authorized George W. Bush to go to war without having a clue as to what was actually going on. Okay. So your your first job on Capitol Hill was as a staffer for Senator Javits of New York. Uh, you wrote that he once lectured you about never sending him out there to ask a question that you did not already know the answer to. Why is that important? Um, so you can't get bullshitted. Um, it's pretty simple. It's a it's a, it's a standard lawyer's approach to to you know to their how they deal with stuff. And Javits, uh, he is an extraordinary individual, but he also he is a lawyer, and he had that training, and he wanted me to be able to tell him when that answer that he was getting. Uh, I worked with him on the Foreign Relations Committee was bullshit, and that didn't necessarily mean that he would take on that witness right away because he had to get the context and figure things out and so on. But uh, lots of times uh, he would send up follow-up letters. Uh, the witness would appear again. Now, last time you were here, you told me this, but that's apparently not qu quite the case, is it, Mr. Mr. Secretary? Um, it's not just good um, research, it's good politics. Um, there's lots of examples in the history of Congress of senators and congressmen making a real name for themselves as somebody that the witness had to fear uh, and uh, somebody that uh, if you give them an answer, make sure that you're not going to hear back from, from them again. Um, that day and age is gone. Uh, that's no longer a concern of witnesses before Congress, either from the Pentagon or just about anywhere else. Um, but it's also great political theater. Um, a hell of a lot more interesting to a journalist who takes his job title seriously as uh, a senator who can uh, get him new information, get him a conflict going on in a hearing, uh, rather than what we see today, which is bozos giving staff-prepared speeches or bozos reading off questions, getting garbage for an answer, and then saying thank you very much and moving on to the next staff-prepared question. Watch on C... I, what, yeah, I've done it countless times. Um, watch, go to a hearing. Watch it on C-SPAN at home. Look at the uh, questioning period and f just make tick marks 
about how many um, uh, members of the uh, Armed Services Committee in the House or the Senate are not actually asking any question whatsoever. They're just giving some dorky little speech um, because um, there's, they think that'll, that'll play well. And then they say something mindless at the end. Of, so what do you think about that, Mr. You know, Mr. Secretary or you know, General, General Smith? Um, others, countless others, will literally read off a question or pretend they're not reading off a question, but they're constantly checking that piece of paper in front of them that you can't see. Their eyes going down to the paper and make sure they're tracking right in what their staff wrote. They get the question out. Uh, the witness mouths words in response, um, and they say thank you very much, and they move on to the next one. Um, it's pathetic. There's very, very few, uh, you know, that I've seen the last five years that go to a hearing prepared, uh, know what the bullshit answer is to the question that they have studied up on and their staff has worked tirelessly on to help them fit, sort things out. And uh, they pursue the line of questioning with follow-ups and, oh, that's not quite entirely, you know, complete, is it? You know, Mr. Secretary, whatever. Uh, two members come to mind who have been doing that. Uh, uh, one is uh, Kelly Ayotte from New Hampshire on the A-10 issue. And the other is um, Congresswoman McSally in the House of Arizona, also in the A-10 issue. Uh, both of them, um, for very different reasons, are well informed on the subject. Both of them have good staffs who keep them, keep them current on stuff. Both of them apparently spend the time before an Armed Services Committee hearing to prepare and uh, uh, they're a joy to watch. Uh, the others are pathetic. So, so the challenge to me, at least from the from the staffer's perspective, is to to get that member of Congress to actually sit down and study the material in advance. How does a how does a young staffer go about doing that? Um. The best answer I can give is it depends on who is the young staffer and who is the member. Um, if the young staffer is interested in getting a job in the Pentagon or getting a job in industry after it leaves Capitol Hill, he's not going to do he, he can't. Um, because oversight pisses people off. Um, dragging out the finer details of what went on in that, you know, that incident in Afghanistan, or how did the F-35 really do in that test, or you pick it. Um, that requires the witness to divulge things to you that he or she almost certainly doesn't want you to know. And uh, when you drag things out of them that they don't want you to know, that's an unhappy experience for them. And they will remember uh, who that staffer was who gave them an unpleasant hearing. So if you want to move on, 
to the Pentagon or industry or whatever, do it now. Don't stop wasting everybody's time, including your own, and go do it. If, however, um, you're perfectly prepared to take shit from these people before you know the hearing, before the next hearing, uh, and for uh, the word to get out that you are not a cooperative player, uh, uh, that's the kind of young staffer who can begin to do some oversight. It takes some skills, and it takes some, um, uh, you know, some some long work habits. But if you don't have that initial impetus to want to do it, uh, you know, they can't do it. The other part is the member. Um, some members are totally resistant to oversight. Uh, they think the purpose of the hearing is to give them a chance to give a speech on whatever, and they're not going to listen to some young kid trying to tell them otherwise. Um, um, it's essential to try to hook up with a member who is interested in some of these subject matters and is willing to do at least some of the work to uh, spend time reading up on it. Members of Congress work extraordinarily hard um, and their work habits are, you know, they work far longer and harder than I ever worked. Um, but in these days, they're spending all their time fundraising and doing, you know, the, you know, the, the bullshit part of the politics rather than the substantive part of the politics. Only a few of them are willing to take some time away from that and to get into things. Um, most of the members wish they could get into things uh, if only they had the chance or the opportunity, whatever. Um, and I think that's most members of Congress. It's the staffer's job to make that happen. Uh, you gotta find a way to get him or her interested in what you think is important. Uh, and once you've once you've pulled that trigger with the member, it's all downhill from there. Um, but if you can't, if you don't have a staffer who's genuinely interested in finding out what the hell is going on, and if you don't have a member who cannot be convinced to get serious about a subject matter, it's not going to happen. So in the, in the current Congress, less than 20% of members have served in the military. In 1971, at the peak, 72 members, 72% uh, of members were veterans. Do you think that this fact affects Pentagon oversight? I don't think so. Um, I think it depends on the nature of the person, whether he or she has been in the armed forces or not. Um, sure, um, if somebody's a you know a former pilot, uh, you know either you know in a transport or you know a bomber or or a, a you know, a, a joint strike fighter or whatever. Um, he knows certain technical things. Um, but it, you got to go back to whether he or she really wants to be doing the exercise, finding out what's going on. Uh, that's a something from come, comes from within, inside them rather than their mental, you know, physical experience. Uh, if they're interested in finding out um, 
how an F-35 actually did perform in, you know, air-to-air -air engagements with an F-16, uh, that person, if he wants to or if she wants to, can ask a lot of well-informed questions and can sense bullshit. Um, but if the person isn't particularly interested in embarrassing the F-35, it ain't going to happen. Um, and so I go back to what I said earlier. It depends on the fundamental nature of the person. You know, the two that I pointed out as positive examples of oversight that I've seen in the last few years. Uh, one is former military, Martha McSally. One is not, Kelly Ayotte. Uh, it depends on the person wanting to do the thing rather than what graduate degree or uh, award is hanging on her or his wall. Okay. So I take it then you don't think that non-veteran members are reluctant to challenge the generals when they come up to testify. Um, they don't want, it, it's a, it's, it goes back to what another thing I was saying before. Um, you can only be serious about oversight if you're okay with the witness being pissed off with you after the hearing. Um, and that's regardless of how many stars that witness may have on his shoulder. Um, that's a real, pro it's always been a problem. Um, even in the 70s when I started working on Capitol Hill and there were some examples of real oversight then, um, members were very reluctant to take on um, the uniformed military. Um, however, there were some who still did it. Uh, they would get themselves informed. Um, they would ask questions. They would listen to the answer and they would follow up and, uh, uh, you know, say, well, that's not quite what I, how I understand it, General. Um, and uh, uh, in, the, in, this, in the Foreign Relations Committee in the late 70s, we had hearings on um, uh, the strategic arms uh, reductions treaties with the Soviet Union. And there were members in that committee like Frank Church, uh, Jacob Javits and even Joe Biden. Uh, one of the few times Joe Biden spent some real energy informing himself about something. Uh, he was well staffed in the matter and he pursued it. Um, that was the good Biden. Uh, and he asked lots of questions and he probed into the consequences of the answer and whether the answer conformed with the information he was aware of. Uh, and he did a good job. Uh, that's the first and last time I'll, I saw Joe Biden do any real oversight on Capitol Hill, even though, you know, 20 years later, he was chairman of the committee. Um, his performance in that week in October 2002, when Congress authorized war with Joe Biden's vote uh, against uh, Iraq, was pathetic. Um, um, he had the ability to command hearings at the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, he had hearings, but there were oversight hearings. There, there were, please tell me what you want to tell me hearings. And that was the end of it. Hmm. Okay. In the your chapter in the Pentagon Labyrinth, you laid out some rules of oversight and you listed uh, a bunch of precautions. And the first one that you talked about was 
people issues come first. Right. And you've already touched on this a little bit about how if a staffer's ambition in life is to go get a job with industry or a bigger position within the Pentagon, that they should all do us a favor and mm-hmm. go and do it now right, and not right. waste anyone's time. So can you expand on that a little bit more and describe the kind of person who can become the most effective congressional staffer with regards to Pentagon oversight in particular? Um, well, we've talked about sort of the, the core types of personality that wants to find things out. Um, w- once we've established that this staffer wants to find things out and he or she has a member who maybe can be convinced to look into things, um, there are all kinds of ways to do it. Um, you have vast resources at your disposal, CRS, CBO, GAO, um, um, the, uh, there's all kinds of people inside the Pentagon, uh, not the liaison types who are there to sell you all the soap they can sell you, um, but there are lots of people in the Pentagon who uh, have all kinds of important information. Your job is to find them and to convince them that you can be trusted with that information. Um, there are a few, a very few think tanks with people who are not abject careerists uh, waiting for the next administration to give them that job they want. Um, um, You need to make distinctions about in the think tanks who are the ones who are important for you to talk to and to learn from and who are the whores. Um, There's plenty of the latter. There are some of the former. Um, There are all kinds of methodologies. a hearing is far from the only way to conduct oversight. Sometimes it's the least efficient way to do it. Sometimes you're a lot better off commissioning a report from GAO uh, as long as you bird dog their work on it week after week after week, talking to them about what they're finding, how things are going, what their problems are. Did they get that document they are being denied from the Pentagon last week? Um, you just don't fling over a request and wait six months or a year for it to come back. You know, God knows what you'll get you know, when you do that. I know, I've been there. Uh, you can write your own report. Um, uh, if GAO can't do it and the chairman of the committee doesn't want to have a hearing on that, get to work. Do it yourself. Um, you're not so busy that you can't over several weeks or if not months put together an astonishingly astonishingly good report about uh, you know that airplane or that ship or whatever it is that you're interested in. Um, when I worked at the Senate Budget Committee, um, we the staff would go on trips to military bases, production facilities, and so on, and these uh, would usually result in a well, actually, you couldn't go on the next trip, according to the staff director, until you had given him your trip report on the last trip. And this was not going to be a page and a half. This was going to be, you know, 10, 20 pages with attachments and appendices about what the hell you saw, what were your questions, what were their answers. You know, uh, he took the job seriously. Uh, and when, you, when, when, when he had your report on his desk, 
that was then you could ask to go on another trip. Yeah, it was real simple. Um, and sometimes those trip reports had some pretty interesting stuff, and we found ways to get them out. Um, um, there's all kinds of ways. Uh, don't come whining and saying, oh, they won't have a hearing on the committee on this. You know, bullshit. Go do it yourself. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to skin the cat. All right. Now, I think this is one of the problems that we have in Washington now. Back in the, the 70s and, and 80s, we had the... the the Boyd Roundtable that takes place at, at Fort Myer used to be a big thing. And there used to be dozens of people from everywhere, from Capitol Hill and the Pentagon, who mm-hmm. used to go to this. And I know that there was a lot of there were a lot of relationships that were formed in in that. That kind of thing doesn't happen very often in Washington anymore. So how would a how how would a congressional staffer go about convincing someone from inside the Pentagon to to, to trust them, as you said, how, how, how should they go about now establishing those good those good relationships and those good contacts in order to facilitate the uh, your own internal loops, as uh, as mm-hmm. Chuck Spinney describes them? Yeah. Uh, today is extremely hard, um, and that in the '80s when I was doing it, that Wednesday night bunch at Fort Myer was extraordinary. There would be. Staffer, Hill staffers there like me, there'd be journalists there, there'd be the vast majority of people were from inside the Pentagon. And um, they, of course, wouldn't tell you squat unless they understood that you were, you could be trusted with the information. One, which was, you know, hard, hard to prove and to demonstrate, to, to, takes time. But also more, just as importantly, that you do something with the information um, and something worthwhile, rather than, well, gee, that's good to know that the, you know the F sixteen has longer range than the you know the A model, the F fifteen. Um, what are the implications of that, and so on and so forth? It's one thing if if they see you just gobble it up for your personal information. It's another thing if they see you using that little tidbit in part of a web of oversight that you're conducting. In that case, they'll call you back or they'll call you. Um, um, but if you're just this useless little weenie who's there to listen to what they say and, you know, go home that night after your, you know, fifth beer, say, well, gee, that was interesting, you know, they're not going to talk to you. Um, it's like most things in life. Um, um, you form contacts and you sort through them and they sort through you. And uh, if you have two entities that are productive and ethical, they're gonna form a relationship. If one of them is neither, it ain't gonna happen. Um, but I, I tell you, it's so hard today. I mean, the Wednesday night group um, at Fort Myer is a, is, a, is a dim shadow of what it used to be. Um, times I've been over there, there's still interesting people there. Um, but it's not this dynamic, you know, large, chatty crowd that it was, God, that's, we're talking 30 years ago. Um, um, and so it makes it very hard to go find sources inside the Pentagon that uh, 
want to talk to you with things other than the party line and won't, uh, uh, you know, who would be willing to risk their jobs uh, if they were to be found out talking to you. Um, it's very hard. Um, every now and then you see in the newspaper a report comes out. Um, it's got some interesting stuff in it. Um, these reports often have authors and researchers listed at the at the end of them. You know, typically a GAO report does. Uh, sometimes a DOD report will only list the office uh, that it comes out of. Call the office. Ask to speak to their public, you know, you know, mouthpiece person who uh, can talk to you about the report. Maybe you can start a process where you find the people who actually wrote the report. Maybe, you know, I mean, there's, you know, take a stab at it. You see something interesting that coming out, coming out of the Pentagon, um, rather than just file it away, um, look into it. Who wrote that? What office wrote that? Can you call them? Can you get more? Can you talk, talk to people who know more about that? Uh, it starts a process. And as you go through that process, you find people that you don't want to talk to anymore because they're a waste of time or that don't want to talk to you anymore. Uh, but if you, you know, if you do it right, uh, you start a process where you learn more, you develop sources, you develop more information, and it builds on itself. In your chapter in the Pentagon Labyrinth, you mentioned Harry Truman's investigations into military spending at the beginning of World War II. That's where he famously got in his own car and drove all, all over the country mm -hmm. inspecting plants and uh, that were producing war materials. And in the course of those investigations, he discovered all kinds of waste and corruption. And one source that I've I've seen, it's estimated that his reports save taxpayers as much as $15 billion. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested if you can describe your favorite story about Pentagon oversight from your time on Capitol Hill. Uh, there's a couple important things about what you just said. Um, that $15 billion was in 1940s dollars, and today's dollars would be about $300 billion. Um, that's not chicken feed. Um, it's important also to note what Truman did. He got in his car and he rode, in, it was a Dodge, and he rode, drove himself to bases. He didn't go with some freaking entourage of his own staffers, let alone, you know, the, the, you know, that, you know, the uniform horse holders who are, always very pleasant, but made damn sure that you didn't get off onto any unbeaten pass. Uh, and he would drive up to the base, announce who he was, and want to talk to people. Um, what he found horrified him about money that was being wasted, and he knew exactly what to do with it. He was going to go to the White House and tell them they had a real problem. And he went to um, Roosevelt's White House, and they told him to buzz off. He was going to be a problem if he was going to, you know, stand in the way of, of you know, the money flow that in as early as 1940 was gigantic for Department of War and Department of the Navy spending. Um, he got frustrated and so what he did do was he gave a speech in the Senate floor and said what we need is a committee to investigate this and lo and behold he was the chairman of it. And uh, I tell you he was a much better senator than he was a president. Truman made a lot of bad decisions as president 
even though I had a nice, attractive personality. Um, but he was a tiger, and he was he was not so aggressive that he would berate witnesses. He always treated them with respect. Um, but his his reports and his press releases were typical uh, Harry Truman plain speaking. When, for example, he complained about the second-rate uh, fighter aircraft we were producing at the beginning of the war. Um, and he got into all kinds of unsub unsexy things like uh, armor plate and uh, food quality and all kinds of obscure stuff that uh, was not sexy, uh, you know, on the face of it, um, but was important to, for the war effort. Uh, and he made, he made himself into a national figure. You know, and of course he became vice president and president and things went downhill from there, but he was a, he was a super senator. Um, uh, one of the favorite stories I have about oversight occurred in the first few months when I started working for uh, Senator Javits as his research assistant uh, uh, for Foreign Relations Committee work. Um, uh, J. William Fulbright, the Democratic chairman of the committee, was having uh, hearings about the war in Indochina. And, you know, I was interested in that stuff, but I was too junior to sit behind the members uh, at the committee. I had to go sit in the public audience. Um, you know, today that's not a problem. You, you know, they, they got 50, 70 staffers behind those people hearing today I mean you, you could be a you could be a you know coffee deliverer and have your own personal seat in, in the staff area in the hearing uh, but back then uh, um, most members weren't allowed a staff member to sit with them um, um, if you're a senior on the foreign relations committee you could have one uh, um, and anyway so I was sitting in the audience in uh, in the back of the in the middle of the room and the witness was um, William Rogers the Secretary of State and the subject matter was illegal military activities in Laos uh, that the Nixon administration said was not going on and Fulbright staff had uncovered was going on um, um, the involvement of, of um, military officers uh, in combat in Laos that was explicitly prohibited uh, by legislation passed by Congress in Laos. Um, the way they got around it was that um, we had a military aid program uh, in Laos and they called them military equipment delivery teams dash end use supervisors. Um, and these were military uh, combat advisors and participants in violation of what Congress had passed. And Fulbright's staff had found out about this, and every time Rogers would give an answer as Secretary of State, Fulbright would respond, well, that's not really quite accurate, is it, Mr. Secretary? And then he would give the actual information. And Rogers was being demolished as a truthful witness and it was a real embarrassment to him. And so the hearing is over, you know, after a couple hours. And Rogers and his entourage 
um, are walking out of the hearing room. And I'm sitting there and, you know, a little staff weenie in my chair in the audience. And as luck would have it, they walked right by me, the entourage did. And as uh, that happened, uh, one obviously more important guy said to one lesser important guy, find out how those bastards found all that out. That was an oversight hearing, you know, had all the criteria, you know, the senator asking the questions was informed. He didn't care whether the witness got pissed off at him or not. Um, um, the witness left very unhappy uh, and the public was informed about things they didn't previous know, previously know. Um, you know, the Nixon types would, of course, say Fulbright was grandstanding. Of course he was grandstanding. It's a political process. Fulbright was against what Nixon was doing, uh, but he had the smarts to do it the right way rather than give some stupid speech and pound the table and make an ass of himself. Uh, he made an ass of the Secretary of State. Uh, um, and that's oversight. Again, that was Winslow Wheeler. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There, you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can also follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Strauss Military Reform Project's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Fellow here at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to bring you in-depth content on the topics that matter most to you.